interesting topics to kick off your weekend. Looking at the news with an eye of faith. This is Friendly Fire with Stu Kearns on the Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Good Saturday morning. It's a Friendly Fire Saturday. Stu Kearns, your host. Glad to have you along. Uh, it is, uh, boy, baseball continues. They're on the road, but uh, hey, they're on TV, Big Ten Plus. Uh, watch everything you can. Get outside. And by the way, this is, I know this is kind of early for a shameless plug, but uh, my shameless plug is the Lincoln Marathon is one of the uh, premier events in the whole city. And I never saw it for years. And then all of a sudden, uh, about uh, 10, 11 years ago, I decided to try to do this before it was impossible to do it. And I've been doing it for the past 10 years. And I'll just say that uh, it is a heartwarming event when you run in it just to see people who don't even know you, to shout your name and and uh, to encourage you. And, uh, you know, whether you're going fast or whether you're going slow, I don't go fast, so I don't know what that would be like. But when you're just putting along and, and uh, it's so encouraging to see friendly faces and people shouting and encouraging. And uh, so that's going to be this uh, tomorrow, actually. And uh, I'm going to run. Uh, look for me. Red shorts, black shirt. And uh, even if you don't know me, if you shout, hey, Stu, you can do it, uh, it'll, it'll help. It always helps. And uh, another thing that helps is a good guest. And today I've got an old friend <laughs> who is also a multiple-time uh, guest. Is this a third time? Yeah, yeah, it is. All right. <laughs> this is, uh, that's the voice of uh, Jake Meter. How are you doing, Jake? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we've known each other for a while, but in particular, having you on the air has been related to books that you've written. <laughs> and uh, what are the titles of those books again? Um, the first one is In Search of the Common Good, and the second one is What Are Christians For? They're both from InterVarsity Press. All right. IVP, which in the Christian world, that's, that's I mean, it's a pretty big publishing house. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, that's not a, a double or a triple. That's a home run right there. <laughs> um, and are there any plans for a uh, third uh, book? Uh, there is. It's coming slowly. So it's a little bit of a tough subject at the moment. But oh, well. yes, it's two thirds of the way done, but it's been right. two thirds of the way done for a while. Well, so. I'm just here twisting the knife, <laughs> so to make you feel bad about that. But, uh, but hey, for I, you know, I, I don't. A lot of people shove books at me. I, I, I don't read all of them, but I've read every word of both of your books. <laughs> Thank so you. So there's, there's that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what else have you been? Now, uh, some people who know you a little bit, they don't know. Uh, but others who don't know, you're also involved in a uh, an endeavor called Mere Orthodoxy. Okay. Uh, just give us the thumbnail sketch. We can do a shameless plug later, but uh, <laughs> what's the thumbnail sketch of what Mere Orthodoxy is? Um, a Christian media project trying to present a intellectually credible, existentially satisfying account of Christianity and public life, and also trying to resist a lot of the radicalizing tendencies that happen with um, I guess you could say online content and personal formation. Mm. Um, for a lot of people today with our phones and high-speed internet, um, there's a concept called third places that you get in sociology. Third places are places other than your work or home where mm. you gather with other people and spend time together. Mm. So it used to be the bar where everyone knows your name, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, increasingly, people's third places are digital, and mm. digital networks do not have the same kind of formational tendencies as going down to the bar for a drink with friends after work. Yeah. Um, 
So there's a lot of really bad things that follow from digital becoming the third space. Mm. Um, there's not a lot I can do to make digital not be the third place. Mm. But what we can do, and we try to do at Miro, is be a voice. We talk about sometimes jokingly or half seriously, uh, an outpost of sanity in a <laughs> very mm. fractious, loud, angry yeah. online media environment. And we do also have a print issue as well. Yeah, so. yeah. There are uh, third places now. When I grew up, the third place was usually the church, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's uh, not not as much as it used to be. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I don't know if this was a. I'm, I'm enough older than you that this may not have been your experience, but I know that, like when I was growing up in the '70s, uh, schools actually tried to avoid doing uh, programming on Wednesdays because that was kind of church night, mm. and uh, and so there were there was kind of a uh, an understanding that there was a fairly significant role played by churches. But what are some of the, so maybe a church is your third place or a, a digital third mm-hmm. place now is taking the ascendancy. What are some of the other typical third places that people cheers the bar? I mean, traditionally you'd have like neighborhood bars, neighborhood coffee shops, maybe bowling league. That's kind of the famous mm-hmm. ap- um, option from bowling alone, that book on loneliness in the U S from about 20 years ago um, mm. by Putnam. Um, could be things like the Rotary Club. I remember Senator Sass would talk about the Rotary Club a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, could be a, a union, like a like Union Lodge for union workers. Um, there's all kinds of them yeah. in the post-war era. Um, and then but as you get into the 90s and 2000s, uh, economic factors start to shift. Um, lifestyle changes start to shift, you know, like. So I, I have a good friend who lives in an older part of Pittsburgh. And you can just see, like, this was a working class steel city. Mm-hmm. And you can see the way of life kind of laid out architecturally for you. Mm-hmm. And so you can see, like, well, there's where they would have gone to work. And they lived five minutes away. And there's a row of bars along the main drag yep. between the two. And you can just kind of see the way of life. There's mm-hmm. the parish church. Pittsburgh was a huge Catholic town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could just see it architecturally um, mm-hmm. and geographically. But as you get the move to the suburbs and you become more car dependent, um, well, now that trip to the bar to hang out with friends, maybe you don't work with your friends, so you're already all coming from different places, and you also have to drive 15 minutes to get there, and if traffic's bad, it might be 20 minutes, and you only have a half hour because you got to get home Mm. or you got soccer practice. so basically lifestyle changes kind of devoured those sorts of third places. Mm -hmm. And then around the time where all of those changes are continuing to build, now we have smartphones, now we have social media. And so we kind of get this idea of trying to connect with people digitally, which mostly is not a thing, but Mm -hmm. that's what we were sold for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately what people have, I think just found experientially. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Um, if you're dealing with an institution, something that's geographically bound, um, there's only so many people that can patronize the establishment or attend the church or participate in the bowling league. So you've got to have some ability to work with a variety of people. Mm. And so you stand out in the institution by being a bridge builder. Mm. Um, digital networks, the potential pool of users, which even the term shift is a little bit telling, um, is basically limitless until you hit like 
internet users globally. <laughs> mm. So there's always a more niche community or network you can plug into. And so you don't really need bridge builders in digital networks mm. because there aren't that many bridges to like build and navigate. Mm -hmm. um, the way you stand out in a digital network is you're the most devoted, you're the most committed, you're the most extreme, you're mm. the most radical. And so in digital networks, you kind of get this ratcheting effect where everybody is competing to show off who is the most committed. And they mm. do that through showing who is the most extreme in their views. Mm. And you have enough of those networks and you give them enough time and you remove enough other influencing factors and formational factors in people's lives, you get something that looks a lot like what America is starting to look like. Mm. Um, so I think if there were things that we had, and I actually just saw um, Utah actually had a thing this week where they um, now have a really tight age limit on adult content on the internet in the state of Utah. Um, I would love to see more stuff like that where we're actually trying to limit the effects of tech in shaping people, mm. but I don't have that power. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I, I'm a writer, I'm a reader and thinker and student. And so what I can do is try to create something online that resists those tendencies mm -hmm. and says, we want conversation. We want careful thought. We want sincere disagreement. Um, Mm -hmm. And the sense of we're pursuing truth together as a band of friends. And so that's what we're trying to build at Miro. Mm. You know, as you were describing these third places and the kind of place that we kind of hunger for, um, I don't know if the listeners have experienced this, but I, we watch, uh, you know, a variety of shows. One of the more recent ones, All Creatures Great and Small. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've watched that one or not. I've read some of it and I've only seen an episode or two. The uh, It's... You go, so it takes you to a place, a beautiful place, and then the village and the community, and there's a part of you that says, oh, man, that's what I want. I want to I wanna live in that village, mm -hmm. and I want to be around those people, and I want to have my life kind of walkable, you know, mm -hmm. that I, I walk to the pub, and I walk to the church, and I walk to all the different places, and, and my friends are so readily available to me. I mean, I know that's a little bit, okay, it's very idealized, but... There is something that we've lost that we're, we, still, we still seem to be a bit hungry for. Yeah. I mean, so it's not false. Like, it's just factually, statistically accurate to say Americans are deeply, deeply, deeply lonely, mm. getting more so, um, increasingly beset by mental illness. The mm. rising youth generations seem to mm. be the hardest hit. Um. I did a research project a few years ago for a group that works on college campuses and it was a university profile and it was a profile of an extremely prestigious West coast school. Um, the sort where like you get in there and you're made for life if you get, if you finish. Hmm. Um, and I talked to recent graduates and multiple recent graduates, and this was actually back, this might even have been before Trump, actually, so it's, I'm sure it's accelerated, given everything from the last six or seven years. Um, a number of graduates told me the university does not have enough mental health staff to service the needs of the students. Hmm. About half of the student body is visiting mental health resources regularly on campus. Hmm. 
Um, and for a lot of students, the only person they have on campus that they can talk to about, I mean, big things, but very ordinary human things at the mm. same time, yeah. um, are mental health professionals. Mm. And so we've kind of professionalized care yeah. because it doesn't happen through civil society, through households, through churches um, yeah. as much anymore. Yeah. I'm going to take our first break. When we come back, I want to pick up on that theme <laughs> because uh, you're also, uh, uh, well, you're writing a, uh, uh, not a blurb, but whatever it is, you're, <laughs> you're writing, you're writing, you're reading a book and doing a review of it. And mm -hmm. it's a, and it's basically on a similar theme, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Let, yep. Let's take a little break. We'll come right back talking with Jake Meter. He's the local author. And uh, we're glad to have you along here on The Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Keeping the topics lively and the conversation civil, this is Friendly Fire with Stu Kurds on The Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. We are back. It's Friendly Fire Saturday talking to Jake Meter. Uh, Jake's written a couple of books, uh, excellent books published by IVP. Working on a third book. It's a, it's a sore topic. Don't, don't bring it up anymore, Stu. Okay, I won't. I won't. Um, but you're also, once you've written a couple of books, then they ask you to like read, give insights, maybe write a blurb or what are, what are they? It's not a blurb. What do they call that? A, Endorsements. A, an endorsement. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. a better word. Although we, we do call it a blurb. They, they are also often called blurbs. Yes. <laughs> okay, but uh, but uh, the topic of the book, especially as a pastor, and uh, you're again, you've got the theological instincts of a pastor combined with uh, some of the theological <laughs> instincts of a sociologist and, and a lot of other things, too. Uh, but uh, tell me about this book that you're uh, that you've been looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's by a couple friends of mine. Um, it's called The Great Dechurching um, by Jim Davis, who's a pastor at Next Twenty Nine Church in Orlando, and then Michael Graham, who works for the Gospel Coalition, um, specifically for their Keller Center initiative that launched this year on cultural apologetics. So what they did is, so they've been living in Orlando, both of them almost their whole lives. Um, Mike, I know for sure as I think Jim as well. And they just noticed just looking around at Orlando, you know, in the 1990s, when we were growing up, Orlando looked like it was going to be the next like big Bible belt hub. You know, RC Sproul was based there. There was a seminary there. They weren't that far from D James Kennedy. Um, tons of evangelical stuff going on in Orlando. And these days, Orlando's church attendance rates are more in line with what you would have seen in like the Northeast 10, 15 years ago, hmm. um, than, let alone than anything like you would have seen in the Bible Belt in the 90s. Hmm. And so that got them thinking, like, what's going on? Like, why has church attendance dropped off so much? So they um, raised a bunch of money and commissioned the largest sociological study on um, changes in church attendance in America. Um, to their knowledge, that's ever been put together. So they had Ryan Berge, who's a religion sociologist. I can't remember where he teaches. It's in Illinois somewhere. He kind of organized and led the study. And what they found is that 40 million Americans have dechurched in the last 25 years, um, mm. which relative to American other events in American history, changes in church-going practices is the biggest, fastest change our country's ever seen. Mm. Um 
the earlier parallels would be the first great awakening, which is like the 1730s in New England, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. Mm -hmm. uh, second great awakening is the early 1800s. Um, Finney would be a big player there. Um, Charles Grandison Finney. Um, and then the other two big spikes that have happened in U.S. history up to this point, one of them was in the 25 years after the Civil War, which not that surprising. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other was the 25 years after World War II, mm -hmm. um, the 50s kind of being a high point for church attendance mm -hmm. in American history. What's happened in the last 25 years in the U.S. is a bigger swing than any of those and it's going in the opposite direction. So mm -hmm. all of those were people who weren't going to church started going. This mm -hmm. is people who were going to church or leaving. Mm. So this book is um, publicizing that data and then offering some analysis, um, some focused on talking to people who have de-churched and some um, focused on talking to Christians and ministry leaders, pastors, about what's going on and what can be done to change it. A friend of mine summarized the pitch as basically the de-churched can become the re-churched. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I think Mike's going to use that now, but mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's the basic angle. But so yeah, the, the data is really the, the heart of the book and facilitates all the analysis and mm. discussion. There, uh, I mean, obviously this is something you can talk to with my pastor friends. It's a, it's a widespread phenomenon uh there it, it tends to be again the younger generation uh a click or two behind us um but uh but you but a generation that you're largely a part of mm -hmm. i mean and, and this is a part of your own personal story and your friends and everything were some of the mm -hmm. what were some of the things that you read in the book that really resonated with your own personal experience uh, growing up around here well so this is what was interesting about the book is because what they did is they broke the people who have dechurched out into five groups um, they call them cultural Christians, mainstream evangelicals, um, ex-evangelicals. Um, they had people of color treated in a separate group for a variety of reasons, and then de-churched mainlining Catholics, which they initially treated as two separate groups. But when they dug into the data, the characteristics and behaviors and beliefs were so similar between the two groups mm. that they just treated it as one. Um, so I think the stories that a lot of people are familiar with would be the ones that fit in that ex-evangelical chapter. Mm -hmm. um, basically, no people in the ex-evangelical group expressed any openness, whatever, to ever be part of an evangelical church ever again. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the stories where there was sexual abuse, there was other forms of clerical misconduct, um, there were issues around LGBT is um, questions, things like that. Um, what was interesting is that of the three groups that are mostly evangelicals, that's the smallest group. Mm. Um, the largest group, over half, was of the evangelicals were, um, they called them cultural Christians. Mm. And these are the folks that they kind of grew up going to church occasionally when it didn't interfere with youths with their sports schedule when their parents took them there. Mm -hmm. um, never really internalized a lot of the beliefs or teachings of the church. And then they got into college or early career adulthood and church just didn't really fit into their schedule anymore. 
they didn't understand why they would go, and so they just kind of floated away. Mm-hmm. So they make the distinction between what they call the casually dechurched, who ne- there was never really a day where they decided, I'm not going to church anymore. Mm-hmm. It just kind of floated, like they kind of floated out the door over time, mm-hmm. versus the dechurched casualties, um, which are the um, usually the people who have been wounded very deeply in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But the casually dechurched are actually a much larger group. Mm. Um, and many of them actually expressed willingness to come back to church if somebody would invite them. Mm. Or if they would be invited and then felt like they were actually welcomed into yeah. like a group of friends that were committed to this way of life together. Yeah. Um, a lot of the stories they have in the book are less the like stories like mine that or from the church I grew up in. And they're much more, yeah, you know, I, I graduated and I met somebody and they didn't really go to church and we got married and then we got busy and started having kids and work. And mm-hmm. basically all, it felt like all we could do to kind of take care of ourselves and our people and church just isn't part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, there was a sense almost where I, I think sometimes a lot of Christians approaching these issues, we kind of go, well... The problem would be better if evangelicals just weren't so terrible. Mm. <laughs> and there, there's some of that. Yeah. But what the data really comes out to say is that it, there's almost a sense in which the issues are less specific to evangelicals or Catholics or mainline. And it's more just about the way that day-to-day life in America works for a lot of people now. Mm. Um, where there just isn't a lot of time for things that aren't like contributing to like building up your own sense of self. So I make time for my job. I make time for something that looks good on my CV or that gives me that kind of like adrenaline hit from a good experience or good emotions Mm -hmm. um, or that benefits me financially in some way. Those are the things that we like, we have the cultural scripts to understand why those things are worth doing. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, there's not a similar kind of, rationale for attending church and so they don't Mm -hmm. so it's the kind of data that everybody who talks about this will find something in the book that surprises or kind of Mm. confuses them and that's part of what i've so enjoyed about the book because it's helped me think a little bit more clearly about some of these things and be a little bit less pessimistic in some ways um and also i think reckon with some issues that i hadn't thought about as much before. Mm -hmm. Let's take another break. When we get back, I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper on this issue. And, uh, and by the way, it's always fun to talk with Jake because uh, Jake is just reading a ton of materials and, and uh, is a really tremendous gift for synthesizing those things. I think that's why you write books. Um, But, uh, and by the way, that third book, no, no, I'm heaping guilt. I don't want to do that. Um, Let's, uh, let's take a little break. We'll come right back. We're talking with Jake Meter today. And uh, glad to have you along here on The Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Interesting topics to kick off your weekend. Looking at the news with an eye of faith. Friendly Fire with Stu Kearns, 1499.3 KLIN. We are back. It's Friendly Fire Saturday talking with Jake Meter. He's a local author here and uh, and a lifelong Lincolnite, such as myself. Uh, we're a very uh, select club, aren't we? <laughs> I suppose. Havelock kid. So. Yeah, 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 there you go. Well, <laughs> Havelock is extra special. I just grew up in Southwest Lincoln, so I, there was no, like, we didn't have a name or a thing. Like, 
unless you want to claim Indian oh, Village. Man. That was uh, actually though that that part of Lincoln is called Indian Village. It is. Havelock has its own mythology, man. I I still hear stories from friends where I like one hundred percent believe it, <laughs> and also it's like I grew up in quite a place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, we love we love Havelock. I tell you what, I grew up being told about the glories of the Isles. And how mm -hmm. it's oh, like, yes. oh, that pizza, you taste that pizza, you throw rocks at other pizza, you know, that's the, <laughs> and, and so I finally had to go there once and it's like, okay, it was fine. It was good. Oh, it, no, no, no. But it was The Isles like, is legit. <laughs> I mean, I have a partisan interest yes, being yes. from Havelock, I suppose. Yes. But. No, I mean, I, I went and I said, well, yeah, that's good pizza. But I mean, I didn't like, you know, it didn't change my life. You know what I'm saying? That's all. It's, but actually, it's kind of like people who come here and they, when we say, hey, you have to have, to have some Valentinos. You know, we can all say that together as Lincolnites. And then they say, like, yeah, it's okay, uh, it's fine. I know. So I took my kids to the Dude Perfect tour a couple of years ago when they mm. were down at the arena. Mm. And they did a top 10 fast food list on the stage. Mm. So one of them gives his list of top 10. Mm. And then the other guys in the show basically harass him about why his list is bad. Yeah. So they did not have Runza in their <laughs> list. And... By the time they were getting into top three, basically everyone in the arena was aware that Runza was not anywhere mm -hmm. to be found. Yep. And so there was like 20,000 Nebraskans <laughs> booing these, or not booing, but like yelling at these five Texans yeah. about why they didn't have Runza on their top 10. And I was sitting there with my kids like, this is one of the most Nebraskan moments of my life. <laughs> and then at the end of the show, they came out and said, okay, we have good news. We got DoorDash. Runza is on the way. Nice. Oh. <laughs> so we, we shamed the Dude Perfect guys into getting nice. Runza while they were here. Nice. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Oh, man. Well, you know, by the way, I who know who can account for, you know, if it's a taste of your childhood, you love it, right? Mm -hmm. the, uh, our kids still, when they come back, the kids, they're in their 30s. But but uh, when they come back, they have they want to go to Amigos and have like anything drenched in ranch dressing, you know? It's like, I need a crisp meat burrito and some ranch dressing, you know? So I don't know, did you, did you ever have that same uh, pathology? Not with Amigos, although my best friend was a fan. There were six kids in the family, so they did a lot of Amigos because yeah. of the cheap kids' meals. Yeah. So I have lots of memories of going to get Amigos with their family. Yes, yes. But, all right. Okay, back to the topic at hand, although I, I always enjoy talking local cuisine, if we can call that stuff cuisine. Sure, sure we can, can't we? We can. Of course we can. Um, uh, back to the, this book, the uh, de-churching. Uh, uh, one of the things that I'm always, you know, you're talking about this these third places. Now the mm -hmm. church used to be the third place. Mm -hmm. and, and how the church now, the, people don't see the church as being a viable third place. Mm -hmm. uh, and... and, and uh, so not to get too deeply into what the book has to say, but as you think about what, how we begin to, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, we're both very theologically driven uh, guys, and so it, you know, if it's, if the answer is to compromise our theology to get people in the door, that's that's just not really on the table. Mm -hmm. But I, but I'm also a practical guy, and I think there are a lot of things that uh, that attract people or don't attract people in just terms of way that they they live, they relate. Mm -hmm. There, was there anything that kind of stirred in your mind of some of the th some of the ways in which, again, a, 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 and again, mm -hmm. uh, just to be real clear, you know, theological, uh, you know, uh, issues to me aren't really on the table. How we present them 
is on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, what were some of the things that you would say might be clues as to how people begin to think of the church as a third place again? Um, so that's the part of the book I'm still reading. So I can't <laughs> get, I'm going to finish it as soon as we get off the yes. air and write my endorsement. Yes, yes. But, um, but these are your thoughts. It, it is important to read books before you endorse them, which is uh-huh. one of the dirty secrets with endorsements. <laughs> um, yes. But so the thing that's so striking about it is that I, I, so I think what evangelicals, I think especially do this because we're now on the back end of 40 years of seeker sensitive stuff. Mm. And so the seeker sensitive move is to gather marketing data on why people don't go to church and then build a church that hits all of those buttons for people. Mm. And then people show up and you have your church. Mm. From what we've seen so far, it seems like that's going to last for about a generation, and then it doesn't work out so well. Um, mm. Like it's just we could get in all of that, but um, that to me seems like a bit of a dead end. And so, what that if I had to worry about the book, it would be that I think it would be very easy for evangelicals to pick up this book, another version, and, of that. right? Yeah. And now they're going to make their itemized list of techniques that we can implement to yeah. fix all the bad things mm-hmm. and go. Yep. And that's really not that's not the issue. Um, the two things that came up a lot um, in the data, one of them is just time and lots of things going on and church not being a priority. Um, the other was a lack of relationship with people in the church, often even with parents. Um, mm-hmm. There's a number of people in the data that are reporting that if I had been able to talk about some of the things that I was struggling with in high school with my parents, mm. maybe things would have gone differently, but I knew that wasn't a safe conversation to have. So I kept it to myself. Mm. And then when I went off to college, I talked about it with someone else mm-hmm. and it goes from there. Those people often actually are willing to come back to church incidentally. Um, so it's certainly not a like final irretrievable defeater kind of thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I think a lot of it is that, again, we live in a very, very lonely country. Um, we don't have natural pathways toward life together mm. for most people. Um, and people often are not available just for, I mean, it's those kids at that school that I profiled out on the West Coast. They're dealing with thinking about I mean, they're college kids, so they're thinking about partners, they're thinking about career, they're thinking about lots of big, weighty existential things that are also very ordinary, normal human things that most people 20 years older than them have had to work through to some degree. Mm -hmm. Um, But the only people they feel like they can go talk to are mental health professionals. Mm. And so I think there's a certain sense in which there's just a like this is just being human that we're talking about. And yet I think we've to a large degree lost track of what that actually means. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was even a friend of mine who's another writer. She was working on an essay about writing in the age of chat GPT. And she said, if, if we live in a world where people think chat GPT can write good essays, Mm. that's almost our fault for not communicating like humans, but communicating like drones who are trying to just relay facts and pass tests Mm. rather than interacting like human beings. 
And I, so she jokes about trying to start a movement of reactionary humanism. <laughs> um, I, I think to me, that's where my mind goes for a lot, a lot of the conversations that need to happen. We, we don't need another church growth technique. Mm-hmm. We don't like, don't roll out the new program. Don't roll out the like digital meta church experience that you can have on your phone. Like that's, that's what we have already. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need to like triple down on po- politics, whether that's left or right. We've got plenty of that on both sides of the spectrum in the church. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people actually, one of the bigger drivers wasn't abuse. It was people saying that the church was more about politics than Jesus. And I don't share the church's politics. Mm. So yeah. I could stay and have lots of unpleasant conversations with people that won't go anywhere yeah. or I can just leave. And in their minds, it's almost being polite to just leave rather than be the like stick in the mud that is constantly dissenting from what everyone else thinks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of it is just human connection. And so if there were, if there was something, I would think it, it would just be, um, there's a pastor in Australia. I listen to a lot named Mark Sayers. Um, and on a recent podcast of his, he talked about creating spaces for the hungry and so their church um, has started doing Sunday night gatherings that the only real stated purpose is to pray for renewal in the church and in Melbourne where they are and in Australia. And so it's not something where like you're being pressured to come. We're going to oblige everybody to show up and make you feel like you're failing if you don't come. It's nothing like that. It's just we sense within our community a hunger for something better, something more than what um, we're experiencing right now. And so we're going to bring that to the Lord and pray together and trust that he'll meet us there. Mm. And so I think if you start with that concept from Sayers, I want to credit him for it, um, of creating spaces for the hungry, that seems like a good starting point for me. Mm-hmm. Um, cause then at least you're talking about real, like human desires mm-hmm. and lacks and needs rather than just pulling stuff from a survey or spreadsheet and spitting out new programs. Yeah. Yeah. Take one last break. I want to pick up that theme uh, because I have, uh, I've bumped into a couple of things that I think seem to kind of be like that. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. It's a friendly fire Saturday talking with Jake meter. Glad to have you along. Uh, One last break. and We'll be right back here on the voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Bringing you local voices to break down the news of the week. Friendly Fire with Stu Kurds on the voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Rolling right along on a Saturday morning. Uh, it's a Friendly Fire Saturday here, talking with Jake Meter. And uh, Jake, it is that time of the program. We always have a shameless plug. So, uh, you know, I, you just plug away anything you'd like to plug. Um, we're trying to build a band of friends with mere orthodoxy for the renewal of the American church. Um, and the renewal of American common life. And so um, that band of friends, it needs writers, it needs um, editors, it needs kind of admin people supporting it, it needs people praying for us, we need financial partners, all of those things. I see all of them as being part of the band of friends building together. It's not just the content producers that matter. We need, we desperately need people praying for us. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we're doing i think we're doing good work we have a lot of promising things going on but yeah we're always looking for more people to bring in and mm-hmm. join arms with as we try to build something so. and what's that website um uh, mirrororthodoxy.com 
MirrorOrthodoxy.com. New, new version of the site should be going out in the next two weeks, hopefully. Ooh. The current version was hacked together by me in WordPress like six <laughs> years ago with a $50 WordPress theme. All right. So this one is actually going to be professionally developed and designed and run out of HubSpot. So it will be a little bit more <laughs> nice <laughs> professional. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm sure the one you created was just fine. <laughs> but, uh, but. You know, let's let the pros do their work. Yes. And you won't let them write your uh, essays. That is correct. So, something like that. <laughs> um, you're, uh, so this phrase, okay, the last segment, that I thought that was really interesting. Uh, spaces for the hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the things I've, uh, well, this past year, I've, uh, I've kind of been fairly public past several years, fairly public about uh, having a lifelong issue with anxiety. And again, it's not all the time, which is why a lot of people would say, well, you don't, you seem fine to me. That's because most of the time I am fine and except when I'm not. And then, uh, and uh, so I've been doing various things. And so one of the things I started at the church was just an anxiety support group. Now it isn't like a million people come to this thing, but, but pretty consistently five or six people come different people and, uh, and and all it is is a safe place. I make it real clear. It is not a therapy group. I am not a therapist. I'm mm-hmm. not qualified to be a therapist. <laughs> so and the and and we really try hard not to give each other advice in that sense. But mm-hmm. just the ability to sit in a room, talk with people who who connect with your experience and know that those people uh get it, they understand. Mm-hmm. It's been powerful for mm-hmm. me personally. And I know for a lot of the other people in the group, uh, is that, I mean, is it in the realm of what, um, you know, they're thinking about? That's when a they good, say that could be a very good example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, so I, I have a friend, several friends now, it's been a very encouraging thing, um, who live in Queens in New York. They're part of a small Anglican church mm-hmm. um, in Forest Hills. And they jokingly refer to kind of the group of friends there as the Forest Hills Christian Commune. Mm. Um, But being out there has always been so striking to me to watch because, um, apologies if this is putting it a little too severely, there's a sense in which the people I see from Emmanuel in Queens, they actually think about their weeks as if the most important thing in their life is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, who was God, walked out of the grave on Easter morning and is now alive and calling us to a certain way of life. Mm. Like they actually, and I mean, I've not lived with them for months at a time or anything, but when I've Mm -hmm. been out there every time and I observe how people relate to one another, it appears to me as if that is the most basic fact they consider Mm -hmm. as they think about their week. Um, And so there's this part of me that um, I think a lot of Christians, they don't know what to do with these kind of large national issues because it seems too big and the things we might actually have to do are just too radical to mm-hmm. actually like work. And I think in my mind, I'm like, well, you you already as a Christian believe that this poor itinerant Jewish man from a despised part of the Levant 2000 years ago was actually God. And you believe that he was killed and came out of his grave alive. 
and that he now has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on your behalf. Mm. There is nothing after that you can believe or claim that to me is going to sound crazier than that. Yeah. <laughs> and so if that's where we're starting from, then I think, yeah, lots of things should be on the table. Um, things as simple as creating those kind of spaces in churches um, mm -hmm. and things. That, I mean, I've got friends out in upstate New York who they commit to live together. They take lifelong vows to belong to a community. They renounce private property and live from a common purse. Mm. Um, and people think that's crazy. And I'm, in a sen certain sense, sure. But I don't think it's crazier than what all Christians already are supposed to believe. Mm. So I think that's the thing that I kind of came away from, at least so far with the book and with the whole conversation is like, I'm actually very, very hopeful more hopeful than I was before, just based on how many people are saying they'd be willing to come back to church. Mm -hmm. um, and how many people that have de-churched still affirm tons of basic Christian orthodoxy, mm. um, sometimes at higher rates than people who do go to church, mm. <laughs> um, which was yeah. really weird. Um, yeah. So yeah, I feel very hopeful, but I also want to just expand our imaginations um, for what's possible. Everything from things like support groups for mental illness to like, I don't know, things like what I saw out at Forest Hills or what I've seen with the Bruderhof. I think there's a lot of possibility. Yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks for coming in today, Jake. <laughs> I sure do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks and, for having uh, me. come back sometime? Yeah, that'd be great. All right, <laughs> uh, I leave you saying, as I always do, to think about it and talk about it. We'll see you next time. <laughs>